The little boy inside the wealthy John Hammond has imagined creating a theme park that excited the minds of young and old, rich and poor. Though his park is close to completion, reports of issues are starting to make his vision seem impossible to achieve. Will the boyish dreams of John Hammond turn into a nightmare? The book, Jurassic Park. The author, Michael Crichton. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's get lit! Hi readers, this is Alexis. And this is Kari. You're listening to Lit Society, a podcast about books and drama. Mm-hmm. So, Kari, how was your week? It was great. Um, yeah, Did you I do just, something special? Um, I had a little staycation that was fun at the Langham in downtown Chicago. I never stayed there. Have you stayed there before? I have, and it's on my list of hotels. I like to visit hotels and just um, stay for a Same. day or two. Mm-hmm. Same. So side note, we just read Crazy Rich Asians. Can I talk about that a little bit? If you want, okay. if you want. <laughs> so not only do we read a book a week, you guys, sometimes we like to really just mess with ourselves and throw another book in there for no reason. Push so the envelope. <laughs> so we were reading about a lot of sad stuff. So I wanted some escapism. And I read Crazy Rich Asians. The point is, all the rich people in that book don't um squander money on hotels <laughs> they will sleep like 10 people in a room to not spend money on a hotel and that stuck with me because that's where a lot of my money goes like you i love staycations because uh-huh. Chicago's an awesome city um mm-hmm. my some of my favorites are the viceroy i like staying at the virgin hotel but at the langham i finally felt like i was being treated in the manner i deserve uh-oh. And what I mean is before I got to out the car, okay, they said, hold on, hold on. Someone came to my door and said, do you have everything? Do you have your phone? And he looking in the back seat for my phone. I said, I got my phone. He said, okay, ma'am, wonderful. Can I take your bags? I said, you can. <laughs> now, Please I didn't know them. where he worked. He was just so nice. But it turned out, <laughs> fortunately, he worked where I was going. Good for so, you. <laughs> good for me. Yikes. I walked in. I was parched. They said, ma'am, would you like some water? I said, I would. How did you know? Anyway, it was really cool. <laughs> so uh, that's what I did. And I read some well, books. That's nice. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Anything that stands out to you that you read? Um, Honestly, I didn't read Crazy Rich Asians. I read Crazy Rich Asians, Rich People Problems. Uh, no, not in that order. Crazy Rich Asians, uh, China Rich Girlfriend. What's the second Yeah, one? China Rich Girlfriend. And Rich People Problems. I was enjoying the escapism and all the money. And um, <laughs> the money, though. <laughs> it sounds fabulous. So It does. Um, so that's what I did. What about you? What did you do this week? Wow. I don't know. I thought I had something special, but I don't. That's fine. You're special. That's all that's necessary. <laughs> I'm going to think about it later. Like, oh, yeah, I went to the zoo, but that didn't happen. So <laughs> don't go to zoos. <laughs> Can I ask you something? A, th- a, a theme aside from the theme of the week. Do you go to zoos? I love the zoos. You love zoos? Yeah. And I I was thinking I should go to the um 
Brookville Zoo. I haven't been, but I do enjoy zoos. You don't find them ethically like, like immoral. (laughs) You know what? Can I pause here? Yeah, that was the theme I wanted to do. Yeah, this book really made me bite down on something I've been avoiding in my mind. I love the idea of zoos, but animals in cages, I don't enjoy. And this book really made me solidify the fact that, yeah, zoos bother me. They do. And I like walking around, sneaking in a cocktail. You know, that's all part of it. Um, In Chicago, we have these winter lights festivals where you put on um, glasses and all the lights in the zoo look like snowmen. And it's really cute. And then you're like walking and drinking, but I don't want to see animals in cages. It just is bothering, especially large animals, giraffe, elephants. To see an elephant in a cage, they looking at you like, you know, this ain't right. And you're like, yeah, you're right. (laughs) They know elephants are highly intelligent. So, Uh Uh yeah. But anyway, so you maybe we'll talk about that next week because we kind of like 30 minutes into the show. Yeah, yeah, that I would love to talk about next week because that was the initial thing that came to mind as I was reading this book is zoos. So that's a great thing. Oh, I can't wait to bite down. Okay, we'll do that. (laughs) All right, well, let's move on to the theme of the week. So we're going to discuss movies that are better than the book. I think this is right on theme, Alexis. Do you? Okay, well, then let's go with this. We love movies. We love books. But is it possible for the movie to be better than the book? We know books are always going to have more detail because you can only do so much in a two to three hour movie. Right. Mm -hmm. So, Kari, what are your thoughts? Can it is it first first and only answer this question? Is it possible for a movie to be better than the book? Yes. Ooh. And why do you feel as you do? Sometimes movies are more economical. They're more greedy with the information that they're feeding you. And that can work toward the betterment of the story Um, instead of going on and on. Sometimes authors get into these side characters or side stories or ideas. And I get it. You really want to um, share this idea that you think is really cool, but it doesn't always fit the story. Uh, Filmmakers and movie writers have to, for the sake of time, usually narrow that down and cut the fat. And that leads to a more streamlined story, which can be better. Um, Sometimes, too, they take like the meat and potatoes of what was written and make something completely different, but with like um, a, a more relatable theme because movies are more mainstream than books are. I get it. I, I get it. Uh, I, I do. I, I guess I do believe that um, that it. Because the imagery is there and and sometimes you need the imagery. No? No, because our imaginations can make things so rich, uh, whereas reality is bound by certain. I mean, take the, taking this book, for example, although it was executed extremely well, you have to actually build a dinosaur. <laughs> you know, there are limits there. So but with this book, having seen the movie already. um. It was hard for me to color outside the yeah, line because yeah. it, they were there already. And so sometimes when I, it's not that I can't imagine it, mm-hmm. but I like when they put that on screen. Jeff Goldblum's character, Malcolm, 
when I was reading about him in the book, he's not suave. He's he does dress in black and he has he has this like rock star character about him. But, but he's I'm balding, picturing, right? He's balding, which isn't a big deal to me. But he also doesn't seem like somehow the lawyer is the buff one and the fit one. Yes, yeah. And not mm-hmm. necessarily the mathematician. So I was like, nah, I'm good. I'm just gonna imagine young Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> I looked at several lists on the internet, kind of Googling movies that are better than the book. And there are quite a few lists out there. But I'm going to say that a lot of the lists had five of the same movies. Five of the same movies. Yeah, so some movies made all the lists. I can guess some of those. Okay, let me have you start with one. So I'm going to tell you on everybody's list is The Devil Wears Prada. Have you read that book? Actually, No, everybody's list is not included. Well, then their lists are wrong. (laughs) That book is garbage. (laughs) The movie? (laughs) See, the book ain't got Stanley Tucci in it. It ain't got a little disheveled, uh, ready to be made up Anne Hathaway looking good, serving looks. Okay. It's all materialistic. It's all labels from the first page. It's my Prada shoes slammed down. It's like, what, girl? This ain't cute, you know? But the movie is fantastic perfection okay i'm gonna run you the list and then we'll talk about it and and there are no particular order it's just anything by dan brown (laughs) sorry no oh man forrest gump i never read never read the notebook jurassic park and (laughs) the godfather all five movies were on all the lists that i um came across and that was and just to name a few book riot buzzfeed goodreads man and Screen really yes yes and here's some like honorable mentions as they were on most lists but not all the devil wears prada yes shawshank redemption oh. and the princess bride oh, okay yeah so that's it so now you can go back into your your feelings about jurassic <laughs> park and the book Go for it. No, I mean, uh, that's unfortunate to me. I feel like they both um, they both do what they should. They both give what they were supposed supposed to give. It was given (laughs) in the medium that they were using. So for a movie, I we we were just talking about how we just watched Jurassic Park. I probably have seen that movie 15 times. This is the first time I read the book and I'm like, the movie is so ingrained in my psyche and who I am as a person. How am I going to detach? Well, this book was its own thing. So from the beginning, I felt like, wow, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know who lurking around that corner. I don't even know who's going to (laughs) die. Right. right. All I know is they'll probably be disemboweled because that's like the most <laughs> okay. Can we just say for Steven Spielberg to make this book a PG 13 movie? Kudos. Cause it is gory. Right, Alexis? Uh, so far, no. So oh. far, no. Did you for me? Your half? No. <laughs> you a little for dark, me, no. though. <laughs> you a little dark. I just thought it was really gory, but okay. Okay. No, I, do you know that's your thing? Did you ever read any of the other books that are on the no, list? No, just Devil Wears Prada and Jurassic Park, but I did have my own list. Okay. Well, you go forth. Go forth. Have you read uh, Count of Monte Cristo? No. No, it's okay, a book I the, want to read. It's like five Bibles long. Right. I have started that book a million times, but I know how it ends and I like the movie better. 
Ooh, uh, okay. There is less bitterness in um, the count, quote unquote count. Um, he's more, he finds love in the end of the movie. And although Jim Caviezel, I think, is like a weird anti-vaccine COVID denier right now, I think. Um, I still find that movie really enjoyable and it's really underrated. Um, also, I'm going to bring some musicals in here. Yeah, right? I love that movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And no one talks about it. I I Mm-mm. think Count of Monte Cristo is like a perfect movie. Um, and then there, I'm gonna, there are two musicals. <laughs> Phantom of the Opera is a great book because um, so children are gross. Um, teenagers are perverts. And there's this <laughs> perversion that especially teenage girls love where you take a monster figure and you make him fall in love with someone beautiful and innocent. Can and I ask? Yeah. Did we read that together? Because I we remember might have, reading Because someone it. stole it from me and I know who you, it is. It's not you this time. Okay. Because I'm like, you always <laughs> blaming somebody. And I Dang. know she don't be listening. She listened to the show like every 10 episodes. But girl, if you listening, I know it was you. And I'm coming <laughs> to get my book. But yeah, we may have read it together. I feel, I feel like, like we did. Yeah. For real, like maybe 20 years ago, girl. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not that old, but yeah. I know. <laughs> 50 years ago. No, but you're, <laughs> but you're right. We did read that together. And I just feel like Andrew Lloyd Webber knows this type of um, twisted love affair combination affair, yeah. that we're all like drawn to. We seem to be not everybody, <laughs> but just to generalize. I mean, it's a common trope in YA novels. The monster falling in love with the innocent girl. We love that. And we the power that she has just over him because of her love and her innocence. He really bit down into that. And even like the um, sequel to Phantom of the Opera, the musical Love Never Dies or whatever. It is trash. And I love it. It's oh, my so bad. goodness. I don't think I heard of that. Yes, you did. <laughs> because when it came out, so it, it was so bad, it didn't even make it stateside. And we listened to the soundtrack. If not you, then it was me and your sister. But that's okay. Have you ever read The Color Purple, Alice Walker? No. No. Oh, well, the book is brilliant and the movie is brilliant. And to see all those um, Black artists in the prime of their careers, maybe not the prime, but um, when they were kind of, I don't even want to say before they hit mainstream. You have Oprah, Whoopi Mm -hmm. Goldberg, um, um, I'm going to say Donald Glover, right? Yeah, it's his name. <clears throat> yeah, I get him confused with Childish Gambino. But anyway, it's oh, um, oh, <laughs> a okay. shame. But to have yeah. all of them just um, pouring themselves into their characters, that bo- that movie has so many quotables. Um, but then the book, too, really, you get into the heart of Celie in a way um, that the movie um, can't because it's not um, inducing your imagination. You don't have to rely on your imagination. And then Crazy Rich Asians, they took three books basically and made it one movie that's very PG. And I felt like uh, they did a good job. It's fun, escapism. Um, And then a movie that came to mind is Angels and Demons. Have you ever read Dan Brown? Yeah, we read it together. We did. Okay, that movie is really bad (laughs) in a really fundamental way where um, Tom Hanks, I know he was um, like the hot guy for some generation, but I don't know anyone in that generation. And to have him play that um, symbolologist or whatever. um, Yeah, it was a total miscast. And then to do it again is unforgivable. Right. Because they did two or three of them. Did they do three? 
Inferno, like I feel like maybe they did. Well, girl, it's bad. So you can just read the but book. But we're it's talking better. about oh, movies, movies that, that are better. better. Sorry. So pull that off the list because that don't apply. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, those are those are great um, selections. I, I have to like really sit down and think. But I thought you didn't like Phantom of the Opera. Oh, is it? So I said the musical. Which I oh, love. The musical. Now the movie That's right. That's with, right. What's his Scratch. name? We shouldn't talk about it. <laughs> no, nah, now we got to talk about it. What's his name? And y'all got him up out the pain for that movie. Because I ain't seen him since. Where, where is he? Oh, <laughs> he was going to be somebody. Goodness. Oh, What's his my name? Goodness. I don't remember. I don't remember. Did, was he going to be somebody? Gerard Butler. Oh, he's somebody. He's yeah, somebody. you'll never see him again. I mean, it's a mess. It's really bad. Of all the things the Phantom can do, he can sing. That's like the point. So to cast a non-good singing Phantom is backwards. You totally missed the essence of the movie. I enjoyed that movie. I Trash. <laughs> so no, I didn't like the movie, but I love the musical. That's right. And it too is trash. Musical. It follows a very Andrew Lloyd Webber formula, but he's good at it. I love Cats. I love Phantom of the Opera. Uh-huh. But I love, love what the, he does. Huh? But did you love the movie, Cats? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. And I won't watch it. And that's also based on a book. <laughs> I remember you watched it. You came back so confused. Not me. I, it's the same as the musical. It's the same as the so musical. So you didn't like the musical? I love the musical. Oh, and you like the movie Cats. It's the same thing. It's not that different no. to me. So Sorry, tangential. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you pushing all my triggers. The point of Cats, the musical, is the imagination. Like to lose yourself in these adults in feline costumes that are so graceful and ballet-like with their movements. That is all part of it. So to throw that all away for CGI means you don't get it. <laughs> that is CGI. You're right. You, really you don't understand. <laughs> no, no one wants this. Stop it. And they didn't yeah. want it. No. But that's <laughs> what a lovely discussion. Even Idris. I know that's why you saw it. That is he don't talk about it no more. If you notice. Yes. When I, you I, talk to him. Right. When last time we talked, he didn't say nothing about it. I see. So. He's embarrassed, mm-hmm. as he should be. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, readers, why don't you let us know what movies you think are better than the book? We'd love to hear about it so we can talk about it later. Yeah, let us know on like social media or email us, ask us at litsocietypod.com. Yeah. And let's take a quick ba- break before we jump into the author and context. Shake and break. Yep. And we're back. Okay, Kari, can you give us some context and background on our author, Michael Clayton? I can. And usually, listener, this is the part of the show where we go into some very well-researched knowledge of the author. But I'm going to just pull from what I know from memory. I ain't really prepared too much for this part. Uh, I do have his birth date. October 23rd, 1942. And unfortunately, he passed from cancer November 4th, 2008. So John Michael Crichton, you guys, was a force. Let me get the bad stuff out of the way. So if you read his books, you know he doesn't think 
too highly of female humans or maybe black people. He doesn't necessarily oh. think badly about them. He just don't think about them. So he doesn't write them. He doesn't write them well. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. So okay. there isn't. Um, I have not found from Congo and Jurassic Park. I didn't finish Congo. Um, I haven't found any like overt racism. However, the characters are co- of color are very one dimensional and kind of uh, only existing to move the white character stories along. So that's that. But glaringly, even more so, and this does kind of feel like an attack, is the way he writes women. It is lacking. Also, female children. Ooh, it's bad. So <laughs> that said, he's a he was a genius writer. He um, had a knack for creating a cliffhanger and keeping a plot moving. This knack led to him um, writing series like Westworld, which I've never watched. Have you watched it? No, no. Okay, he also, I think that's like based on one of his books, The Andromeda Strain. Have you ever seen that? No. That was a movie and a show. People love it. I do want to read that book. Uh, What we are familiar with is ER. He wrote that show. Yep. And I loved ER. A lot of people loved it. Yeah. Yeah. And he he also is very good at taking some scientific fact and put and adding a lot of um, theory around it. To the point where you're like, wait, what? That don't make sense. Oh, too late. Something else is happening. I don't have time to think too much about how that don't make sense. He's really good at that. So like, for example, ER wasn't the depiction of a real emergency room. But who cares? Because it was lively. Right. Mm -hmm. Same with Jurassic Park. Um, But uh, just to let you know, like a little bit about his uh, persona, he was like considered very good looking um, for his day. He was even ranked like um, one of People Magazine's 50 Most Beautiful People in 1992. Do you know what he looks like? Uh, yeah. But okay. Do you go think ahead. he's cute? Go ahead, people. <laughs> Do you think he's cute? No. I mean, so I don't think he's <laughs> ugly, but so the 50 Most Beautiful People, <laughs> I don't know. You guys. Michael Crichton is really attractive. <laughs> I think he's gorgeous. Uh, yeah, he's cute. <laughs> okay. He was go, anyway. Go ahead, Kari. <laughs> Just gorgeous. I don't know. Is that weird? You tell me if it's weird. Michael Crichton, gorgeous. Let it let it be whatever you want it to be, okay? <laughs> All right. Have fun okay. with that. <laughs> All right. Um, seven feet tall. And as an kind of he wasn't necessarily an introvert he was a very I want to say alpha but he was one of these guys who was very entitled like he's born in Chicago raised in um, New York a Harvard man and he okay to give you an example he was getting bad grades in school so he slipped his teacher a, a section of a writing by uh, George Orwell and got a B minus his conclusion writing isn't for me and this teacher is against me so two things about that maybe George Orwell didn't write his best either (laughs) you know what I mean so but his thinking wasn't I should write better it's writing isn't for me and he actually went into medicine so he went to um I think he got his upper his um postgrad degree excuse me upper his postgrad from um Harvard also right Uh, so he he got both from Harvard Okay. Okay. There we go. Uh, he hated uh, doctor school. What do you call doctor school? <laughs> Medical Medicine? school. Medical school. <laughs> well, he didn't like it. 
Um, yeah, you're right. He went to Harvard Medical School, hated it, stuck with it, uh, graduated and became a writer, which was his goal all along. He went to school for science and medicine to become a better writer. Mm. Just gonna let that sink in. And then lastly, a few things. Um, I don't know how he felt about women. He was married like uh, five times. And um, MC didn't believe in GW too much. And that's global warming. Al Gore once said of Michael Crichton, the, oh, because Michael Crichton wrote this, um, I think, a book called State of Fear, where he tries to like debunk through his plot uh, global warming, the idea of global warming. And Al Gore said, the planet, planet has a fever. If your baby has a fever, you go to the doctor. If your doctor tells you you need to intervene here, you don't say, well, I read a science fiction novel that tells me it's not a problem. <laughs> So that's something. Also, velociraptors, as we know them today, completely based on Jurassic Park, because actually the way he describes velociraptors, they probably weren't uh, velociraptors. They were probably another animal. Um, I forget the name of it, but velociraptors are only like four to six feet tall. They can be kind of short and they uh, have feathers. They grew up to 100 pounds. Um, so the, tr- how we picture velociraptors, what pops into your mind, completely based on Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. And then finally, I heard that he wrote the first draft of this book from the eyes of Tim. It was like us, um, first person. Oh, okay. Yeah. And Tim is the kid, the, um, boy. Interesting. He, yeah. His friends told him to go back to the drawing board and then he, uh, wrote a different type of POV. That and that's that. Sense. But you do have to have this like childlike wonderment to really enjoy this book. And I imagine to write it. OK, well, wow. Thank you for sharing. We appreciate all that detail about the Michael Crichton. So why don't you um, share a brief synopsis without spoilers before our deep dive? What if dinosaurs walk the earth today? Like all questions, the subject is about power. Who would profit, who would dominate, and who would die? In this page-turning, cliffhanger-packed novel, unbelievable ideas are presented in packages so digestible and feasible that they seem possible. And in the end, the real monster is who we expected it to be all along. Man. Yikes. Alexis, what were your first thoughts of Jurassic Park? Well, I, I love the movie, so I was excited to dive into the book. Uh, the book, however, was very technical to start, so I, I needed some help getting started. So uh, I eventually got into it. Yeah. How did you get that help? I listened to the audio. Oh, audio helps. Yeah. And and the audio, um, <laughs> it reads like a cautionary tale. The reader is like reading the book as a cautionary tale. Mm. So it's it's very interesting. Um, Kari, who do you think would enjoy reading this book? People who love a very uh, action-packed plot. Uh, This story is always moving and you never know what's going to happen from page to page. And it's a pretty thick book, so that's a feat. If you like that, you'll like Jurassic Park, perhaps. Okay. Well, you ready to take that deep dive into Jurassic Park? Part one, filled with spoilers. Okay. Yes, we are going to review the first half of the book now. Part one. Secrecy breeds corruption. This was explained really well. Biotechnology is unique in its lack of government regulation. 
There are no watchdogs and lines of demarcation between investors and scientists. They don't exist. So some of the scientists um, involved in the research are also funding the programs or benefiting from investors, um, mm-hmm. the money of investors. So it's a field ripe for corruption, but also limitless in opportunity because you don't have those bureaucratic layers um, telling you what you can or can't do. So it's good and really, really bad. Um, and this feels really believable. The way he explained this, I was like, yeah, you know what? And then by the middle of the book, I'm like, this happened. They did make dinosaurs on island. This is real. So <laughs> there was a time when scientists looked down on the money involved with tech development. And this made them like a neutral pool from which to pull insight and advice because they had no dog in the fight. But now developments are made in secret and for profit. And so everyone's corrupt. It was in this environment that an incident witnessed by fewer than 20 people went unnoticed by the general public, even after the hearing that followed the court hearing. It was a closed door issue. What happened off the coast of Costa Rica, where most of those 20 witnesses died, is still widely unknown. And by this part of the story, I'm like, yep, this happened. I'm all in. (laughs) Um, Now, this book diverges a lot from the movie, or I should say the movie diverges from the book in a lot of great ways. Uh, For example... The opening scene, there's like this American doctor on the island of Costa Rica and she's reflecting on her career. She's like, I kind of do what I wanted to do, but I didn't really. All of a sudden, and it's nighttime and it's raining and a helicopter lands near her tent. Um, Some men bring out a boy and the boy is covered in scars. Now, she worked in Chicago and I didn't know what that was supposed to mean, but apparently she knows what maulings look like. Do we be getting mauled a lot in Chicago? <laughs> I was like, maybe bullet wounds if you want to be stereotypical, or maybe she worked, you know, downtown at, you know, Cook County Hospital or something. But well, something. whatever. Yeah, she knows about maulings. So she sees the boy's body and she's like, what happened? And everybody's like, uh, he fell. <laughs> he right. fell in the kitchen. It was just terrible. And he's going, Raptor, Raptor. <laughs> and she's like, huh? Say what now? And um, she asked when the guys have brought him, like, what is he saying? Uh, and, and, and the guy's like, um, I don't want to say what he's saying because that's going to put some bad juju on me. Mm-hmm. She's like, uh, pish posh, that's silly. What is he saying? And so they look up the meaning of the word raptor, which I thought was kind of silly because that is also an English word. Um, but he she looked it up in like a Spanish dictionary and it meant like evil like an evilness that can come and take your kids? Something like that, right? It, it, not so much evilness, but just that a, a person that, um, it's not, it wasn't oh, evil. Yeah, it was no, just no. a person Ca- that- Captures you like a yes, kidnapper. Yeah, You're absolutely right. Yeah, it was like a kidnapper. And then she just kept thinking about that all night because the boy dies and she's like, what was he saying? And he had these marks all over his body and he's bleeding everywhere. And so she looks it up in um, an English dictionary and she sees bird of prey. So she's still confused. So there was this family. And so this is interesting too. Um, Jurassic Park, like one, two, three, four, fifteen. They all borrow from the same Jurassic Park story. So you'll see uh, parts of the book and you're like, but that was in the second movie or that Mm -hmm. was in the third movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they all borrow a little bit um, from the book where they want it. 
So, for example, there's a rich family dining on a private island when their daughter is attacked by a strange looking three toed lizard that walked like a bird and was a foot tall. You'll remember this from the second Jurassic Park. Lesions across her body are foaming where the animal had left its saliva. And the doctors recall a similar incident that happened locally in Costa Rica. Now, the girl lives. um, But the doctor is like, oh, this is just like um, when that baby was attacked or a few babies and children were attacked locally. We think it's the same lizard. But we know what lizard it is. It's a real common lizard. They don't usually attack this aggressively, but maybe they got spooked. So they're blaming the child. They're like, you must have scared the thing. And she's a really intelligent, thoughtful child. And she even made sure to be completely still so as to not scare the animal off. Anyway, um, the lizard that the doctor's thinking of has five toes. So he's like, the girl says the lizard has three toes. The lizard, it truly is, has five toes. She don't know nothing. She's a kid. Mm-hmm. And the li- this little girl is the smartest female human in the whole book. <laughs> <laughs> okay? <laughs> I just got to tell you that. Wait, wait. It's smarter so, than Ellie? Yes. Unfortunately. <laughs> so, um, so the little girl, when she's feeling better, is met by the doctor. And she goes, you have on a different shirt. And he's like, very good. I didn't know you'd notice that. Um, sometimes I change when I spend the night at the hospital. And she goes, but you don't change your tie. And so he's thinking like, mm, this little girl ain't dumb. And so he goes, baby, how many toes did the dinosaur have that bit you? And she goes, three. Again, she is adamant, three. And so the doctor's like, hmm, maybe it is a different animal. Side story. There is a moment where a woman has a baby and the um, person caring for her goes to look after that baby. And there are little lizards all around the crib. One of the little lizards ducks its head and pulls out a piece of flesh. And the woman is freaked out, scares the lizards away. But she already knows the baby is dead just by the sight of him in her peripheral. That's insane. This is written extremely well. And all these really sad stories just fill you with this. um, titillation you are like this is written so well i am here how did i get in the room with this woman and this baby and all these lizards michael Crichton, genius also very attractive um so anyway okay (laughs) go on with that now so so the doctor who was talking to the little girl is like i'm gonna go to the island uh, coast and find the lizard that's been biting the babies why not so he grabs himself a dark gun and he sees nothing he waits around and then a monkey um like comes up on the shore with a large lizard in its mouth, a lizard the doctor has never seen before. The doctor shoots the monkey with the tranquilizer gun. It's like nothing. He just runs off, Mm -hmm. but he drops the lizard and it has um, like a brown stripe on its back and three toes. An x-ray of the lizard has paused for dramatic defect. Did you feel it? And three toes. Yeah. Sometimes when I get excited, I breathe too hard. I got to take a second. Sorry. An x-ray of the lizard finds its way to the fax machine of paleontologist Dr. Grant. I'm so excited talking about this book. It's a problem. (laughs) What type of lizard was this? The experts are stumped until a tech blurts out. So a tech walks into the room where everyone's like, what kind of lizard is this? And she's like, oh, who drew the dinosaur? (laughs) And everyone's like, what? And the woman is like, yeah, that's a dinosaur. My kids are really into dinosaurs, so I know what they look like. 
And um, she's dismissed like, oh, you're ignorant. Shut up. Dinosaurs don't exist. And that was a dumb comment. Gross women. Yeah. So the little girl actually drew the dinosaur because it was part of her school project. And she was drawing it, you know, for the school project. And she also drew it for them so that they knew what it looked like. And that's why they would say, no, no, you're imagining it wrong. You drew it wrong. You were just being extra. Thank you. Oh, I love this. Yes, I forgot about those details. So then the tech walks in and is like, who drew the dinosaur? And everyone thinks she's stupid. Well, no one knows what it is. So they send an x-ray, as we said, to Dr. Grant. And actually, it's the tech who thought it was a dinosaur who sent the x-ray. Well, while examining this unbelievable x-ray, Grant receives a call from Hammond, his wealthy, eccentric benefactor. Hammond is warning Grant that, you know, some investigators, quote unquote, may start sniffing around you. It's all about this new state of the art resort Hammond is building in Costa Rica. A few of the investors are just paranoid, he says. What he doesn't say is that their paranoia is due to a few staff members' mysterious deaths. In fact, someone had just visited Grant asking many questions. And Grant is very charismatic in this book. He's a very... Um, just honest, like uh, down to earth kind of guy. So he mm-hmm. answers the questions. He's like, this has nothing to do with me. Yeah, I know Ham is eccentric, but he giving me the monies and I need the monies to I dig for the, the dinosaurs. And that's our relationship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Grant is like, yep, someone just came and I told him all about you. You know, I don't really know nothing. So it was cool. And Ham is like, great. Also come to my island. Huh? <laughs> so Grant is like, whatever's going on with you and this island and this amusement park has nothing to do with me. And I have a job. That ain't none of my business. It's that ain't of none of my business. business. And Ham is like, yeah, 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 shut up. Listen, I'm going to pay you for one weekend what I donate to your cause each year. I mean, he's like, I mean, <laughs> yes. and you know, I bring that um student, that grad student that study plants too. I'm pay her too. Whatever mm-hmm. I pay you, I'm pay you her too. You getting all the money. So come on. Yeah. Also, another diversion from the movie. They're not dating. They're not dating. I love that. He's, it's a teacher student relationship. And I love it too. Although it worked for the movie. Yeah. You don't need it here. And they love it. He loves children. Oh. That I'm getting to that because that okay, touched sorry. my heart. Yeah, that was, it, it was like. Per- okay, let's stop. Okay. Okay. <sighs> Meanwhile, a competitive company is trying to catch up to Engine. Engine is Hammond's company that's building this amusement park. No one knows what's on this in on this island or in the park. Okay, you guys, you don't know what Jurassic Park is. All you know is that a boy was cut up. He said rafters and that baby was eaten. And then the little girl had bites all over her. You don't know why. And they're all lizards, which that's what you know is they're lizards. Thank you. Yes. So the competitor of Engine is like, whatever they're doing on that island in Costa Rica, we want some of it. In fact, um, this competitor is having a very important meeting with dubious investors trying to convince the table that Engine has discovered a way to clone dinosaurs. And the men are like, I don't think so. And the competitor is like, listen, just nod your head if we should steal their technology. And I'm like, "Mm -hmm. yeah, do it because it's it's being recorded. So they don't want to say nothing out loud. So they all nod their head like we don't think this is true. But yes, also steal. Mm -hmm. So um, they'll make an untold amount of money in tickets, merchandise and possibly pygmy pygmy versions of the uh, dinosaurs. 
that guests have to feed with food also produced by the company that produced the dinosaurs. So the competitor is like, I want some of that. Um, It's incredible and worth the risk. They've incentivized an employee of Hammond of Engine to steal dinosaur samples for them. Newman. Uh, this was another character where I was like, this is just Newman. <laughs> it's, it's a Newman. You it's can describe Newman. him any way you want. But Newman from where? Seinfeld. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Dennis Nedry Newman. Um, so anyway, obviously, this is all going to go well for everyone's plan. Tight. It's going to be great. The plan is for the employee to supply his source which is the um, competitive company's representative with samples on the side of the island where supply boats dock opposite to the side where passengers will dock in the future. That side, the side for supplies is poorly built and difficult to use. No one will suspect anything. Part two. Welcome to Jurassic Park. (sighs) Now I'm going to take a second to describe the characters to you because they're not the characters from the movie. The lawyer. Back. They combine some of them, right? Yeah. So in the movie, the lawyer is like this um, shrively, uh, money-obsessed coward. In the book, how would you describe Gennaro? Like he's, they describe him as a nice-looking young man of about 35. So, yeah. And he's built. Mm-hmm. He's got some courage in him, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In fact, he's ready to burn the whole island to the ground if it look wa- wrong, if yep. it go sideways. He like so. looking for it. And not once in the few chapters that we've read so far did he come off as greedy. He is like literally like, okay, but that's a possibility, right? That, right. that also is, okay, I got too many strikes against you. He's a lawyer uh, mm-hmm. uh, representing investors. Yeah. And but then, then there's the, he yeah. also got um, support from the investors that say, hey, shut it down if it needs to be. Shut it down. Because, in fact, shut it down. That's Mm -hmm. where he went in there with that mentality. I don't remember the investors, so I'm glad you have that detail. I remember his partner going. Actually, it is his partner. It's not the investor. Okay. Yeah. His partner's like, Mm -hmm. it'd be great if this didn't work out because it's giving me the heebie-jeebies. I don't know what's going on. Be prepared to burn it all to the ground. Yep. So that's Gennaro, the um, the lawyer. Then you have the math- mathematician. And I don't care what Michael Crichton say. It's a young Jeff Goldblum. His name is Malcolm. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and he has monologue after monologue he in does. this book. Mm-hmm. He is um, everything you remember about his obsession with the chaos theory. That is who he is in the book. But he's also the moral compass of the book. And he's the only one who calls out Hammond to his face repeatedly. Not because everyone is scared to. No one's scared of Hammond. But they don't. He is. um, He's almost a secondary character. He created all of this. But people are have bigger fish to fry. You're saying (laughs) Hammond is a secondary character? Yeah, I felt that way. I felt like... um, All of Malcolm's energy in this book as a moral compass is for Hammond's benefit. Mm -hmm. And he's the only character that serves that purpose because everyone else is off doing something else. Right. And then you have the paleontologist, Dr. Grant. He digs up dinosaur bones for a living. And then you have the paleobotanist, Ellie Sattler. Again, they're not dating. She is a student, I think, a grad student, but she is a paleobotanist. So Mm -hmm. I don't think she's a doctor yet, but semantics. She's a she should be a smart woman, but she does some very unsmart things. But we'll move on. 
So you must everyone, be further along in the book than I am. I'm like, what are you? I finished this book, book a long time ago. I couldn't oh, put it down. Okay, okay. So yes, <laughs> she's she's still smart in my book. Oh, you're okay? right. You're right. Yes, yes. I'm mad at her for something you don't know about yet. Yes. Okay. Great. Okay. Fine. So you guys, the lawyer knows if he sees anything alarming, like Alexis said, he must figuratively burn the island to the ground or literally whatever mm-hmm. without thinking about it. Just do it. Burn it down. The mathematician knows that nothing living can be contained. Zoos fail all the time. And Hammond likes to say, we're just building a zoo. It's just a zoo. The animals are just bigger. And Malcolm is like, you idiot. Zoos fail all the time. Animals get out. Accidents happen. People get bitten. But those animals are not on the scale that you that you're trying to accomplish, because right now no one really knows what Hammond's doing. They just know what he's trying to do. Um, So Malcolm is like, whatever you're doing, it's doomed to fail because you're trying to control life and life cannot be contained. And life. Always finds a way. That's everyone's favorite quote. It's really good. (laughs) And then we have Grant, which you know very well by now. He uh, knows that as Hammond's beneficiary, he'll do all he can to support the man's cause because that man gives him a living. I don't know if he had. I don't feel like he has that mentality. That is a statement from the book. He Is knows it really? that as his beneficiary, he'll do all he can within reason. He's not going to be dishonest. But if it's a way for him to be on Hammond's side, he's going to take it. Hmm. Okay. You said it's a statement in because the book. Because that's the relationship that. between um, benefactors and beneficiaries. And that's but, the way it's always been. That's the, the statement. So what I'm thinking about is um, Hammond was paying him to provide information. He was like... I ain't doing this. This is too much, taking too much of my time. For real, Grant is all about his job and his business. Hammond pays him. So when Hammond asks for some consultation, he don't know what his, Grant doesn't know what it's for. And he's not really invested in the advice. He's like, yeah, I just want to get to work. Can you pay me, please? Mm -hmm. So I want the monies. (laughs) The monies. And then we have Ellie. Um, At first look at the island, she already knows that they have no clue what they're doing because she's like, all these plants that you got for decoration are poisonous. So why are they here? Obviously, this lack of detail or lack of interest in the details is going to imply something bigger about how you have built this island. Mm. So you're right. At this point of the book, her mind's working, her gears are going and she's got some things to say. Yeah. And you're like, Yay. Okay, so when they land on this island off the coast of Costa Rica, they are immediately met by trees. These very large, imposing trees that walk, that eat, and that call to each other. (laughs) And there aren't just one or two trees. There are dozens and dozens of them because these aren't trees. They are dinosaurs. If it's safe, we're going to make a fortune. The lawyer reasons. This can't be real, reasons Ellie and Malcolm. How are they doing it, wonders Grant. They arrive at their five-star resort-style accommodations. Basically, it's like the Langham Jurassic Park. Um, It's great, right? Mm -hmm. But their mind is focused on the task at hand. They just saw dinosaurs so Hammond is busy trying to wine and dine them and they're like no tell us how the sausage is made how did this happen 
What are you doing here? Is this even real? Can we trust what we're seeing? Mm -hmm. And then when they go to put their stuff in their room before they're given a tour of the facilities, um, Grant is like laying down on the bed and he's looking up through this sky. um, What do you call him? (laughs) Sky ceiling. (laughs) Come on. Sky view, sky ceiling. (laughs) Sky window. (laughs) Sunroof. It's not a sunroof, but it's a. um... (laughs) Why are we being this way? I don't know. What's a hole in the ceiling called? A hole (laughs) where sun pours in from it. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm getting angry with myself. A sun in the ceiling. Skylight. A skylight window. Yeah, you're right. They're vaulted. So they're in this vaulted um, roof ceilings. Ceilings. Yeah, (laughs) with skylights. Vaulted ceilings with skylights. Are we dumb? Thank you. A little bit, a little bit. He's he's laying on his bed looking through the skylight and he notices that there are bars over the glass part. And it looks like um, something that was done after the building was uh, built. Mm -hmm. So he's like, hmm, that is interesting. Second, the surroundings of their accommodations have additions that give the entire place the appearance of a fortress. So like smaller windows or bars and fences. And they're like, but why? Why is that necessary? What is going on? Also, they are not alone. Hammond is outside arguing with the lawyer, but it's too late. Because the grandkids have already landed. They're like, Why and the lawyer is here? like, you insane narcissist. You brought children here. Full disclosure. This isn't a lovely leisure weekend. You are being investigated. We may shut this place down. It could be extremely unsafe. And Hammond is like, pish posh. It's a zoo. Kids yeah. love zoos. Yeah. That's why they here. Also, spoiler alert, he don't love his grandkids as much as he do in the movie. (laughs) They're like cool, but he's using them as a test pool to gauge how kids will love the park. And Hammond really bites down into his uh, villainy to me. I always saw him as the villain in the movies, but this book was like, yeah, he the villain. And I was like, thank you. I thought so. So anyway, back to the grandkids. Let me shut up. Sorry. Okay. So the kids are named Lex and Tim. Tim is like 11. Lex is like eight. Listen, the way she's written, she has severe emotional issues. Like um, she is a young female child written like someone who can't think in a linear way, if that makes sense. I thought she was older. Maybe in the movie she's older. I'm getting that confused. Oh, well, in the movie, the the girl is the older one and Tim is the younger one. The girl is a quote unquote hacker back when that meant something. And the boy is like really into dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. That's not the characters in the book. In the book, the boy is older. He is 11. He is very smart, very into dinosaurs, reads Grant's books. Mm-hmm. The girl is just a kid that is really bad and self-centered and she likes very baseball. So annoying. she's like. She's written so annoyingly and unrealistically. Um, So anyway, we'll get on that later, I guess. But she's got on this like baseball cap her dad gave her and she's always throwing around this baseball. Their parents are going through a divorce um, and it's obvious she misses her dad even more than Tim because Tim and his dad really never connected. Anyway, as a distraction and to test how they enjoy the park, their grandfather has brought them to Jurassic Park. Um. So let's meet Tim to start. 
he recognizes Grant, as we said. Um, and also, I want to recount this museum experience he's, he had where he's mm-hmm. thinking back on his mind when he went to the museum with his family. Now, he, read, um, he reads paleontologist Grant, Dr. Grant's books, and he's really into dinosaurs. So when his dad walks up to a fossil and is like, that's a big one. He's like, Dad, that's not even one of the bigger ones. And his dad is like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And then he's like um, staring at a T-Rex, Tim is. And his dad is like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm counting the vertebrae in the T-Rex, you know, the bones in its back. And he's like, his dad's like, I know what vertebrae are. And Tim's like, well, there are too many of them. And he's like, son, you think you know more than the museum people? Yikes. And Tim is like, that's not my goal. I just know that there are too many vertebrae. And so um, Tim's dad is like, well, we're going to put a stop to this. And he walks over to the security guard and he walks back um, with a blank face. And he's like, yeah, the security guard said there are too many vertebrae um, and they've been trying to fix it or thinking about fixing it for years. You really knew that, Tim. You really knew that. All right, let's go home and watch TV. (laughs) (laughs) And Tim's like, but we came here to see dinosaurs. This is and I've only seen one. Ah, shut up, Tim. Get in the car. And then his dad is like, who's interested in dinosaurs? Like little, little kids. Like you're too old for this. So his dad is a bit of a brute. And yeah. So as Alexis pointed out, Grant really loves kids. And he right away becomes like a protector of Tim walking side by side with the boy. So Tim is like, he idolizes Grant and Grant immediately shows this wholesome interest in him. It's really cute. Mm -hmm. It's hard to not like any group of people so enthusiastic about dinosaurs, Grant reasons. Children like dinosaurs because they're fascinating and frightening, like their parents. He also reasons. And he's like, (laughs) yeah, watching their skeletons and saying their long names is like a way to dominate that power. And I get that. So I like kids. Whatever. So on a tour of the facility now in Jurassic Park, they're shown the nursery where a baby velociraptor is playing on the floor with an aide. The juvenile is harmless at this age and readily jumps into Tim's arms. Dr. Grant takes the animal and begins like holding it over his head, examining it, um, squeezing the tail and the raptor shrieks. I picture like a cat hissing. Mm -hmm. She doesn't like that. She likes to be held close to your body and nurtured. Um, and so will this come back to bite the doctor? We wonder. Anyway. And also during this there tour, you we learned jumping ahead. <laughs> during this tour, we learned that the scientists have no idea how many species they've created. Also, they have to actually grow the animal in plastic eggs because knowing what it is, um, sometimes the animal lives for months um before they know what it is, or sometimes like it grows into something. They're like, huh, what's this? So just to clarify that, they're growing animals in these plastic eggs and they don't even know what's going to come out the egg. Until it <laughs> it's always out. a surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they even let the animal like live for a few months before they notice something is wrong. And that sounds like very Frankensteinish. They're like, something's wrong with the biology of the animal. Let's go back to the drawing board. Like versions. And they're doing this. Yeah, they have versions like you have with an iPhone or a Tesla. And they just go back to the drawing board like they're making electronics, but they're doing it with living animals. What about those small lizards popping up all over the island? Well, the scientists um, grew them to eat the poop of the larger herbivores since the insects that originally would have done that no longer exist. 
And anyway, they have no idea what that insect would even be. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a detail written very well. However, they're certain that the animal that bit the little girl and ate the baby's faces or whatever, that ain't ours okay. because all of our animals are accounted for. Uh, the animal counts is controlled electronically. If even one was missing, they know immediately, they say. The island where the attack occurred is also a day's journey away. It's really far. So it's not our animal. Miles. Dang, girl, you good. So 100 miles away, the animals in Jurassic Park will not live outside of the island more than 12 hours. Also, they're dependent on lysine and it must be administered to them by staff regularly. So the animals are essentially our prisoners on this island. They're not getting out. They're not eating babies. That's not us. It's just not happening. (laughs) It's not happening. You're making stuff up. You can believe what you what I say or what you see. (laughs) So all the animals have undergone radiation treatment also to make them sterile. And they're all female. So they're not breeding. They're not getting off the island. Everyone calm down. All the animals have been acclimated to their new environments, all except the velociraptors. So they have this these large paddocks um, protected by um, electronic fences. But they can't get the velociraptors to like stay in their paddocks in their area. Because they want to, like, eat and fight all the time. So they have them in a pen. Eat people. What do you... Huh? <laughs> eat people. They want to eat oh, people. Oh, yeah. They, they also want to eat people. <laughs> so what do you know about velociraptors, Tim? Grant asks. And Tim's like, well, they're small carnivores that hunted in packs. And Grant then goes on to edify his people even further. They also hunted in packs to take down large prey. Also, raptors are large brained, more intelligent than most dinosaurs, probably some people, too. Someone's like, hey, you want to see the velociraptor pen? And they're like, sure. There are eight adult females in the pen and they're like, great. So to meet them, their group, the mathematician, the paleontologist, paleobotanist and the kids (laughs) make their way down a corridor. They hear bleeding. There's a room full of goats bleating. And then they keep walking to a set of fences. And then they wait. (laughs) Beyond the fences, Grant saw dense clusters of large ferns five feet high. He heard a snorting sound, a kind of snuffling. Then the sound of crunching footsteps coming closer. Then a long silence. I don't see anything, Tim whispered finally. Shh. Grant waited. Several seconds passed. Flies buzzed in the air. He still saw nothing. Ellie tapped him on the shoulder and pointed. Amid the ferns, Grant saw the head of an animal. It was motionless, partially hidden in the fronds, the two large dark eyes watching them coldly. The head was two feet long. From a pointed snout, a long row of teeth ran back to the hole of the auditory meters, which served as an ear. The head reminded him of a large lizard or perhaps a crocodile. The eyes did not blink and the animal did not move. Its skin was leathery with a pebbled texture and basically the same coloration as the infants. Yellow-brown with darker reddish markings like the stripes of a tiger. As Grant watched, a single forelimb reached up very slowly to part the ferns beside the animal's face. The limb, Grant saw, was strongly muscled. The hand had three grasping fingers, each ending in curved claws. 
The hand gently, slowly pushed aside the ferns. Grant felt a chill and thought, he's hunting us. For a mammal like man, there was something indescribably alien about the way reptiles hunted their prey. No wonder men hated reptiles. The stillness, the coldness, the pace was all wrong. To be among alligators or other large reptiles was to be reminded of a different kind of life, a different kind of world now vanished from the earth. Of course, this animal didn't realize that he had been spotted, that he... The attack came suddenly from the left and right. Charging raptors covered the 10 yards to the fence with shocking speed. Grant had a blurred impression of powerful six-foot-tall bodies, stiff balancing tails, limbs with curving claws, open jaws with rows of jagged teeth. The animal snarled as they came forward and then leapt bodily into the air, raising their hind legs with their big dagger claws. Then they struck the fence in front of them, throwing off twin bursts of hot sparks. The velociraptors fell backward to the ground, hissing. The visitors all moved forward, fascinated. Only then did the third animal attack, leaping up to strike the fence at chest level. Tim screamed in fright as the sparks exploded all around him. The creature snarled a low reptilian hissing sound and leapt back among the firms. Then they were gone, leaving behind a faint odor of decay and hanging acrid smoke. Pack hunters, Grant said, shaking his head. Pack hunters for whom ambush is an instinct. Fascinating. Malcolm brings up a good point at this part of the story about the readiness to attack man. He says, you know, lions and tigers are not born man eaters. They have to learn first that men are easy to kill. And the other scientists are like, yeah, that's right. So where did the raptors learn to kill man? What's the answer? What is the answer? I'm like, what is the answer? You know the answer. Raptor. <laughs> version 4.4 so um alexis brought out how they just like releasing dino- dinosaurs like iphones well woo dr woo has been under hammond's employ since school he's 33 now he spent his whole adult life as hammond scientist um doing these um bio tests or whatever and genetic engineering and all that and he's done it now and there are dinosaurs and he's like Everyone slow down. (laughs) So he tells Hammond, he meets with Hammond privately in his very uh, luxurious uh, accommodations on the island. And he's like, hey, Hammond, two things. Number one, these dinosaurs are so fast. (laughs) Do you know we don't have anything to kill the T-Rex? We have nothing. We have we've ordered all these weapons and they're not big enough and they're not fast enough. And Hammond's like. The T-Rex is in a paddock, protected by electricity. Calm down. And was like, listen, (laughs) but are you listening, though? Because they're fast also. In fact, I'm afraid that when people visit, they'll think that the dinosaurs look sped up because they're just so fast. People aren't used to things of this scale running this fast. I think the T-Rex can go up to like 65, 70 miles an hour. Mm. I can't do that. Can you do that, Alexis? No. You probably can. Well, the T-Rex can. No. And that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And Hammond's like, please, please calm down. 
and was like, okay, okay, but listen, because no one knows what to expect from dinosaurs. No one's seen dinosaurs. So we could just kill all of these dinosaurs and remake them slower and more docile. We have a year before we plan to open. Why don't we just try to do the best and safest thing we can by (laughs) genetically manufacturing animals that aren't real, but meet expectation? And this is a great debate in the subtext. It is. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Because your mind, we have a vision of what dinosaurs are like. And so we're just trying to meet that vision. So why do all the extra? Why? Exactly. Especially if it puts people in harm's way. Mm -hmm. Just give them what they expect. They'll be happy to see whatever you give them. If it's drooling and rocking back and forth, they'll be like, oh, it's a dinosaur. (laughs) So why are we making them real? And Hammond's, he's done. He's like, we want reality. (laughs) I have reality. You've made reality. You're getting cold feet. We're so close to the finish line and we've done it. We want real. And um, Wu here makes a great statement. He's like, these dinosaurs are not real. They're not real. Sure, we've genetically engineered them. They exist. They're living and breathing animals, but they're not real. You can't recreate the past. The past is gone. Mm-hmm. So Wu is like the brains and Hammond is all vision, all, you know, go, go, go. Just do it. Get it done. Who cares? Do it. Because his legacy is involved and this is what he wants to be tied to his name as he gets up in age. So to me, it's him. He's got this vision. And I I know you remember when he talks about the ant farm in the movie. Flea Circus. Flea Circus. Flea Circus. When it's the same to me, it's you can see all of that because he's pushing it so hard he can't listen to reason he's so focused on achieving this dream he has he will not i mean he's getting insight solid reasoning from people and he will not back down because he's so stuck on what he has imagined this park should be and you make a great point again just tangentially we're going to touch on this briefly I felt the book really outlined his villainy really well, because what was a flea circus in the movie is a pygmy elephant in the book. Oh, that's right. He takes this very Mm -hmm. small elephant he's manufactured and put in a cage. We just talked about how putting elephants in a cage Mm -hmm. is gross. So he's manufactured a small elephant, no larger than a dog, put it in a cage and takes it to these investors. And once he takes the uh, cloth off and reveals this pygmy elephant, they're just pouring money into his lap. Like, you can do this. What else can you do? What he's not telling them is that this elephant has some um, developmental issues. It acts like a rodent. It's really angry and mean. And then it dies. So it wasn't great. Mm -mm. You did it. But should you have? Yeah. So let's briefly discuss how none of the staff members are happy. (laughs) Because you got to keep your staff happy to have a good uh, just like organization. No one likes it here. Everyone's disgruntled in some way. The Safari Guide, Maldoon, shoot ha! So in this book, he is a uh, African safari guy, Belgian maybe, I think. But anyway, he is Maldoon. That's him. And he's like, "Mm, I am here because I was sick of doing what I was doing in Africa, but also I don't like it here. (laughs) Then we have Arnold, the tech guy. That's Samuel L. Jackson in the movie. 
he his expertise is like designing these amusement parks. And he's also like, hmm, I don't think everyone is as cautious or has an attention to detail that they should. And that makes me nervous. And also I hate it here. <laughs> then we have Nedry. <laughs> Nedry is like undercover for the competition. And he's really smart about stealing. His expertise is security systems. Woo! This one man was allowed to build his own private team to make a security system for this entire island. I don't think that would ever happen. Uh, but in the book, it did. And you never want to trust one person to do anything ever. I repeat, <laughs> never trust one person <laughs> to do one thing ever. It'll never work out for you. So Nedry built a back door in the security system where he could just turn off all the security like a light. He'd just be flick, 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 some security on, security off. They're dinosaurs. It's a problem. Then we have the PR agent, Ed Regis. And I really identify with Ed. Um, with everything that happens... <laughs> <laughs> he is always thinking of copy. Like, what what can we call this when dinosaurs ruled the earth? Oh, this is great. Um, but he's upset because he's basically been put in charge of the grandkids. And he also had to fly that boy out that mm -hmm. was attacked by raptors mm -hmm. to the doctor. And he's like, none of this is marketing. That's not my, <laughs> my job. My job is marketing. I don't assist cripples and I don't take care of children. This is I'm a PR agent and I'm one of the best in the world. So give me some respect. Not not cripples. The the boy, the boy Molly's Molly's. <laughs> That's not my job. I write copy. I get my nails manicured. Why am I here? So anyway, that's Ed Regis. Also, there's a boat filled with supplies docked on the island, but a storm is coming. A storm is on the horizon and they need permission to leave. So this boat is docked on the island in that really poorly built dock that no one wanted to put money in because it wasn't part of the show mm -hmm. of the island. And they're like, we can't stay here because our boat will be destroyed. And then you really won't have your supplies. So either we go now and try to come back later or what? And Hammond's like, oh, fine. He's very petulant all through the book, too. While everyone else around him is like cautious and full of dread, he's just like stomping his feet, sometimes literally. And he's like, fine. And I know adult men like this. And it's, it is like this. Yeah. Really poorly written. Just terrible. Now it's time for the Jeep tour. Actually, it's custom Toyota Land Cruisers. And this is a great addition in the book or a great note in the book because there are Jeeps. They're gas powered. And that's what the vet uses to like drive out to the dinosaurs to assist them so that you don't get confused as the reader. They say Toyota Land Cruiser a lot. So the Land Cruiser, the Land Cruiser, hop in the Land Cruiser. So they're taking a tour on these electronic Land Cruisers, Toyota Land Cruisers. They see a T-Rex feed. So they're going to these dinosaurs. And in the movie, remember, they bring up that goat mm -hmm. and they're like, where's the T-Rex? Well, in the book, the T-Rex comes out and eats the goat. Is this the and gory part? Is this the gory part? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, again, I think Where you're ahead you of in me. This book? I think you're ahead of me. I am ahead of you because I finished, but I'm not there yet. But that's what I'm saying. If you don't think this is gory, I don't know what else you think is gory. Oh, great. How about the disembowelments? Everybody. That's okay. ahead. ahead. That's ahead. It ain't that far ahead. It's not in so this section. Yes, you are ahead of me. Oh, you got some scary stuff coming up for you. <laughs> anyway, so they see the T-Rex feed and they're driving on to the next whatever. And the storm is coming, you guys. So while they're driving, Tim goes, look, they're in the field. 
And everyone's like, what? I don't see anything. And he's like, I think it was a, a raptor. Now, remember, you guys, the raptors aren't allowed in the open. They're only in their little cage because they're so violent and aggressive and intelligent. So everyone's like, Tim, you're dumb because you're a kid. Please be quiet. He's like, man, but I think I saw something. So, Stegosaurus. Um, there's this part in the movie, right, where there's this sick dinosaur and then everyone gets out of their uh, Jeeps in the movie, Land Cruisers in the book. And um, Ellie is like figuring out why the Stegosaurus is sick. Uh, in the book, she does use the power of her brain to figure out why. And it has something to do with them planting plants that are toxic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. OK, so she's like, I'm going to stay with the vet. And then. um. The lawyer is like, me too, because you got some beautiful legs. <laughs> so there is a conversation about how gorgeous she is. Um, and it's fine. Like, it's fine right now. Let's say that. Well, let me move on. Part three. All the dinos humping around. So all the dinos humping around. That's what I was thinking when I wrote that. Oh, wow. Sorry. Okay. All <laughs> so, right. So... these notes are wild you know i want you to be careful now i'm gonna interject here because i think you might go too far please go ahead i promise i won't okay yeah no i promise where i told you we end and i'll publicize it too i'm not going past that okay because the notes don't even overlap it's fine so dinosaur egg fragments are discovered and someone's like, no, that's a bird's egg because these are all girl dinosaurs. And Dr. Grant is like, unless you have ostriches on this island, it's a dinosaur egg. Hey. Hmm. Can you tell the species? Malcolm asks. Yes. It's a raptor egg. Hey, hey. Control room is like, it's a what? So they're still in the land cruisers and they can like... um phone into the control room and control room is like no it's not everyone is looking for these gaps in our you know method Mm -hmm. and they're not there so just stop looking especially Hammond he's again petulant like stomping his feet like there aren't dinosaur eggs that's silly they're all girls so he calls the idea of a dino egg absolutely absurd that's Hammond and then Malcolm asks run a report from the control room of the dinosaur population. And they're like, gladly, we can do that easy because we got all the technology. So let me just shut you up right quick and I'm going to do that. So Hammond smugly relays the number to Malcolm Boom. and the other guests listening. Like, yep, total 238, just like I like thought. I, I hope you satisfied. Everything accounted for as always. And then Malcolm responds, now have the computer search for 239 animals. The computer responds, 239 animals. What is this? Hammond responds. We must have picked up another copy. And those are those like really little dinosaurs that tried to eat the girl and was eating babies. They're called copies. Um, and then Malcolm responds, now search for, oh, let's say 300 animals. Mm. And Hammond's like, what is he talking about? The computer then begins counting all the animals in the park. So just pausing here for a moment. They are manufacturing these female dinosaurs. So they should know exactly how many dinosaurs are in the park. If the animals are breeding, they wouldn't know anything. And it would call into question the entire organization that they built. They trust that organization. (laughs) 
So they don't want to believe what the computer shows them now. There are supposed to be 239 animals, right? The computer is still counting, still counting. And then it says 240, 250, 260, 270, 283, 292 animals. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. Over 50 animals. Extra. Extra, right. Hammond is livid. Nedry explains, out of convenience, the computer expects the user to enter the expected number of animals to search for, but it's for convenience. It wasn't meant to always be what you do. Also, we don't expect there to be more animals than we've made. Malcolm explains, you search for what you expect. You were worried about losing animals. You never expected you might be gaining animals. But the nature of this park is beyond anyone's expectations. And the unexpected will always happen. Inevitably. Inevitably. But how? Wu is shock. He's like in um, denial. Shooketh. <laughs> I repeat. He's shooketh. And Grant thinks he has the answer. Okay, the DNA recovered from dino blood is full of holes. It's either really old and fossils and hardly recoverable, or they're just like in the movie, taking these mosquitoes and amber and, you know, taking out this blood of whatever animal. And then they use a computer program to find the holes and they fill that in with the holes in the DNA. They fill that in with reptile DNA, bird DNA and amphibian DNA. However, a study of amphibians showed some spontaneous, spontaneously switched sexes when residing in a same-sex environment. Grant also guesses that the island had a rat problem when they began. Is that true? Everyone's like, yeah, yeah. we did. Mm-hmm. He's like, and the rat problem went away. And no one took the time to find out why. <sighs> For more information, they need to go to the dino nest. Yikes. And I never understand why. Just get off the island. But they're like, we got to know what's really going on here. How many animals there truly are. We need a real count. Hey, y'all, it's a storm coming. <laughs> it starts to rain. Like, like we said, the lawyer and Ellie stay behind while everyone else continues to headquarters in their land cruisers. Driving back in the fading light, Malcolm seemed oddly subdued. Grant said, You must feel vindicated about your theory. As a matter of fact, I'm feeling a bit of tread. I suspect we are at a very dangerous point. Why? Intuition. Do mathematicians believe in intuition? Absolutely. Very important intuition. Actually, I was thinking of fractals, Malcolm said. You know about fractals? Grant shook his head. Not really, no. Fractals are a kind of geometry associated with a man named Mandelbrot. Unlike ordinary Euclidean geometry that everybody learns in school, squares and cubes and spears, fractal geometry appears to describe real objects in the natural world. Mountains and clouds are fractal shapes. So fractals are probably related to reality somehow. Well, Mandelbrot found a remarkable thing with his geometric tools. He found that things looked almost identical at different scales. 
at different scales, Grant said. For example, Malcolm said, a big mountain seen from far away has a certain rugged mountain shape. If you get closer and examine a small peak of the big mountain, it will have the same mountain shape. In fact, you can go all the way down the scale to a tiny speck of rock seen under a microscope it will have the same basic fractal shape as the big mountain. I don't really see why this is worrying you, Grant said. He yawned. He smelled the sulfur fumes of the volcanic steam. They were coming now to the section of the road that ran near the coastline overlooking the beach and the ocean. It's a way of looking at things, Malcolm said. Mandelbrot found a sameness from the smallest to the largest. And this sameness of scale also occurs for events. Events? Consider cotton prices, Malcolm said. There are good records of cotton prices going back more than 100 years. When you study fluctuations in cotton prices, you find that the graph of price fluctuations in the course of a day looks basically like the graph for a week, which looks basically like the graph for a year or for 10 years. And that's how things are. A day is like a whole life. You start out doing one thing, but end up doing something else. Plan to run an errand, but never get there. And at the end of your life, your whole existence has that same haphazard quality too. Your whole life has the same shape as a single day. I guess it's one way to look at things, Grant said. No, Malcolm said. It's the only way to look at things. We have soothed ourselves into believing that accidents happen outside of the normal way of things, Malcolm says, when in fact change is built into the fabric of existence. Straight linearity does not exist. Events don't occur just one after the other. You know, it's like life is a series of events that each influence the following events. I love that. So they're now being driven along the coast and they're self-driven land cruisers, and they notice a boat leaving the dock. And as a reader, we assume this to be the supply boat, mm-hmm. which it is, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's leaving because of the storm. Right. As Malcolm and Grant are taking are talking in the rear Jeep, they see the car in front of them has stopped. They turn on the speaker, which connects both cars. Lex, the girl, is saying, see it, Tim, do you see it? Are they talking about the boat? The PR manager is in the car with the children, Ed. Um, and so Ed hops out of the Land Cruiser and um, goes to the car that's holding Grant and Malcolm. And he's like, yeah, the kids are all worked up. About what? About the boat? Yes and no. They think that they see something on the boat that's leaving. Something on that boat that's leaving is an animal, they think. <laughs> they think there are animals on the boat. <laughs> oh, so Malcolm my and Grant, <laughs> Malcolm, <laughs> Malcolm and Grant grab binoculars and look at the boat. Look, look low down, Lex says over the radio. Everyone's kind of doubtful because Lex is like really weird and uh, annoying. And they're like, do we even say anything? But Grant stands up for her. He's like, kids can see. They have visual procurity. We forgot we ever had. Grant really likes kids. So he keeps looking and then he sees them. They're playing, darting back and forth, upright animals about two feet tall. They were raptors, juveniles. The boat is going to the mainland. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. They're like, we have to get to control. We have to tell that boat to turn around or those dinosaurs are going to get to the mainland and what's going to happen then? Oh my goodness. Meanwhile, back at control, they're noticing the radios are broken. Also, Nedry is tampering with communications. It's unclear why. And he's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go get a Coke. Does anyone want a Coke? And they're like, no, Nedry, we don't. <laughs> he's like, okay, I'm going to get some snacks too. And so he leaves. He's so sick of him. <laughs> Then, you guys, the power goes out. There are no cameras, no phones, no electrical fences. Everything out. And where have the cars stopped, Alexis? Right outside that T-Rex thing. Oh, so this part is very much like the movie and a little not. Um, But the detail about this scene, straight from the book. So... Nedry, back at headquarters, is skulking around, thinking how smart he is. He built a trap door in the security system, like we said. Everyone just thought it was a bug. But no, it was a way for him to get in and just turn everything off and steal from them and sell it to the highest bidder. And he's great, he feels. All the doors can now just be opened with the touch of his finger. It took him three minutes to steal the specimen. Only three minutes. And it would take six minutes to get to the dock and six minutes to get back. Piece of cake. He'd even grab a Coke. Show up like, what happened? (laughs) I'll fix it. Won't nobody know nothing. Now, Maldoon, who's the um, African safari guide, he's um, on his own initiative, decides to go rescue the guests. So there's not a part where Ham is like, will you bring back my grandchildren? Nah. Ham is right. like, what's wrong with my park? And um, Maldon is like, I'm going to go get the babies. <laughs> and we get them because who knows what will happen with all the Who knows? Now. You're not just out of abundance of caution. Let me just go and get the kids. It's storming. Something's weird with the power. I'm just going to get them and everybody else too. So, so uh, yeah. So mm-hmm. we're with the power in that all the security fences are down. It's, it's down. The only people that have power is control. They're the only ones that can communicate with one another. They can't communicate with the to people, the land cruisers to the land cruisers at all. Yeah. So, um, hmm. So Maldoon is thinking, I'll just go get the, one of the gas power jeeps. It's a good thing I left like this launcher in it mm-hmm. because that's the only thing that can like kind of maybe kill a T Rex if I need it. So he goes to the garage and he's like, what "In the world, the car is gone." The car was gone. How? What is happening? Well, Nedry got the car. So back at the Land Cruisers, we're almost done, you guys. The passengers think they've just um, like had some problems with the cars and they're like chilling. They're like, oh, the, the cars will start working soon. They have no idea that the perimeter fence is also without power. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, T- Tim sees a dark figure run between the two cars because he's in the front car. Malcolm and Grant are in the rear. Something run, runs between them. That figure was as big as the cars themselves. At this point, Tim is wearing this like high tech n- night goggles um, that were in the car. And Ed, the PR agent, even encourages him to put them on like as a distraction, like, you know, so you don't get worked up. Versus the movie where it's like, those are expensive. Put them down. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. Um, And the lawyer ain't even there. So it's just the PR agent who is like, you know, kind to the kids. He doesn't want to be babysitting, but he's not mean to them. Um, He even like plays um, catch with the girl, you know, so and she's really annoying. I wouldn't do nothing with her. So anyway, it's so dark that only Tim can see what's going on because he has these goggles on. Grant talks to him via the radio 
in a way not to alarm Lex, who is already crying. Grant goes, what do you see, Tim? Tim was looking eye to eye at a tree that was looking back at him. It was a T-Rex. And it was touching the fence with its arms. So. Ed Harris, the PR agent, is still thinking about great copy. He thinks to himself, the greatest animal attack in human history. That's what it'll say. The headlines. Out of the people in both cars, Ed was the only one who knew what a dinosaur attack looked like. He had seen the bodies and this was a Rex. Ed urinates in his pants. He then runs out of the car into the woods. In that moment, he's thinking, I have to do something. He left us. He left us. He left us. He left us. So Lex is screaming. The T-Rex is still motionless and huge. He left us. He left us. And in this part, she's probably like thinking of her father. Over the radio, Grant is trying to direct them. Stay in the car. Stay down. Be quiet and don't move. Don't arouse its attention more than necessary. The T-Rex roared, took a large step forward and stood between the two cars. The dinosaur ducks its enormous head down and looks directly into the car, just like in the movie. Then it stands straight up. Then a jolting impact rocks the car and shatters the windshield instantly. The rear of the car lifts into the air and then thumps down with a bloody splash. There was a shrill metallic scrape as claws raked the roof of the car. Tim's heart was pounding in his chest. He couldn't see anything out of the windows on the right side except pebbled, leathery flesh. The Tyrannosaur was leaning against the car, which rocked back and forth with each breath, the springs and metal creaking loudly. Lex groaned again. Tim put down the radio and started to crawl over into the front seat. The Tyrannosaur roared the metal roof dented downward. Tim felt a sharp pain in his head and tumbled to the floor onto the transmission hump. He found himself lying alongside Lex and he was shocked to see that the whole side of her head was covered in blood. She looked unconscious. There was another jolting impact and pieces of glass fell all around him. Tim felt rain. He looked up and saw that the front windshield had broken out. There was just a jagged rim of glass and beyond the big head of the dinosaur looking down at him. The T-Rex slaps its thick tongue around the car. Tim can smell its breath and there's blood around its jaws. It can't get to the kids, so it lifts the entire car in its jaws. Liz falls out of the car into the mud and Tim fills himself too in the moment before his world grew completely black and silent, falling. Mm. When the animal moves Grant toward Grant and Malcolm, they see that the other car is gone. So this is the first time they've seen the car with the kids and Ed is completely gone. There was a car there. The car is no longer there. Slowly, ominously, the T-Rex moves toward their car. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. In this moment, Malcolm decides extinct animals should be left extinct. And Grant's like, yeah, no, you're right. They should. So what do we do now? Neither of them knows. 
Malcolm turns the handle almost instinctively. He's not trying to. He's just afraid. And he begins to run out of the car, but he's too late. Malcolm's body is tossed into the air like that of a small doll. And what happens next, even Grant isn't clear on. He's like, I'm seeing it, but I don't know what I'm seeing. Then Grant exits the car with the intention of running into the woods, but the T-Rex turns around and looks at him. Grant's body freezes. He's shaking with cold and fright. Grant remains frozen. The T-Rex roars, but then does nothing. The animal then began to violently inspect the car, turning it around, and Grant just tries to remain still. He's so close to Grant that the doctor can smell the rotting flesh in his breath. Mm. Still, the T-Rex doesn't touch him and Grant remains frozen. Grant then realizes, ah, the animal is trying to frighten me into movement because without movement, he can't see me. The dino kicks the car and spins Grant's body into the air before the earth strikes the doctor in the face. Um, side note, I love when that's written that way. Um, I've seen a lot of authors talk about the earth rushing to someone's face. If you ever fainted, mm -hmm. that's what it feels like. Why is the earth moving toward my face? <laughs> so that's what happens. Thank so uh, that's the deep dive into the first part of Jurassic Park. You're going to take a quick break and then we'll do like a pseudo verdict. Yeah, yeah. Let's take a quick break. Okay, great. Oh, how quick. <laughs> Alexis, what were your first thoughts of the first part of Jurassic Park? The little girl is whiny and annoying. Mm. And unrealistic, right? Even for an annoying child. No, there are plenty of annoying children just like her. Just wait till you read the second half. You're going to be mad for all the babies in the world. All the little girl babies. I hate that. I hate that she was always, I'm hungry. I Just sit down, be quiet. Oh, was she doing that yet? Yes. There's for real danger. And all she says is, I'm hungry repeatedly. Stop it. Just be quiet. Uh, but there are children like that. So that doesn't yeah. surprise me. That don't seem out of the ordinary. That's regular children. <laughs> I don't like, I don't understand why he identified all the black characters. Why are you saying the black man, yes. the black man? I don't understand that. I, I was waiting for it to be a point to it. Is there something about him None. being black? Why? No. So that I don't get that. Um, let's see what else. Those are just some things that I don't like about it. But other than that, so far, I'm, 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 I'm enjoying it. And like I said, nothing I've read so far is really gory. So. <laughs> I'm going to stick to that. Right, right, right. Well, uh, I don't know. I'm going to take that content warning out because you're right. The first half isn't gory, but the second half is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm just warning everybody. So, yeah, Michael Crichton is very uninterested in female humans. I don't say females a lot, you guys, but I mean like adult women and little girls and black people. And he writes them poorly because he's uninterested and it shows. Um, however, there are some interesting themes already brought up in the book. Number one, the way you live one day mirrors the way you live your entire life. 
Now, I don't know if Malcolm went into this monologue yet, but he talks about chaos theory. Maybe this is in the second half. And he compares it to a mountain peak. No, he hasn't done that The top of that peak. Okay, so the top of that peak is pretty much the same as the entire mountain. And our lives are like that. If you follow someone in one day of their life, you pretty much have an idea of how they'll live their entire life. Some really cool stuff there. I think that's for that other Number two, you, um, came up with. expectation versus reality. Is that what you're thinking? No. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. So, yeah, number two, I thought that was cool. We don't even know what to look for. We just look for what we're expecting. Mm-hmm. But is that the reality? Nope. And when you look at things like that, you're blinding yourself to the reality because you're so narrowly just focused in on what you're expecting. That was really cool. Uh, yeah, and that happens so much in life. And they, oh, that's not at all what I expected. Right. Right. It's not. (laughs) It's inherent to living. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, I love the idea of no one is more optimistic than a narcissist. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like that's what Hammond represents. But so I finished the book because I couldn't put it down. Alexis is right where you are, reader. And we are coming back next week for part two on video on YouTube. Oh, we are going to be on the YouTubers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for that, Kari. No problem. Thanks for listening to Lit Society. We'll look forward to meeting up with you next week, Thursday, and we will be on the YouTubers. Okay. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Anaria and Kari Herrera. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us. Mm-hmm. We love you too. We love you too. If you've enjoyed what you just heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes this month book list and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter and until next time read Read something. something